You're listening to Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett. Today I'm going to play the audio of my Zoom talk for the Center for Peace Studies at North South University in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Since I don't have a university appointment, and when you listen to my talk you'll understand why, I do depend on people basically helping me out through crowdfunding, and the best way to do that is to either give a one-time donation or subscribe. You can use the PayPal button or the subscribe at Substack button at truthjihad.com. We have joined, especially our uh, students of North South University, and I can see also some of the <coughs> students from uh, certificate courses of uh, Center for Peace Studies also uh, have already joined, and we hope that uh, some more will be joining in coming uh, few minutes. So, the, uh, even though this is a little bit a unique uh, uh, kind of a timing, that for the first time we are holding a webinar at 9 p.m. in Bangladesh time, uh, and that's uh, the reason that we wanted to organize this uh, today because this is a special day for Center for Peace Studies of South Asian Institute of Policy and Governance of North South University. Today is our second anniversary. Uh, so we had an interesting program in the morning at the Syndicate Hall of North South University physically, where we had uh, uh, some activities like uh, distributing the uh, photography competition award to the students. Uh, the photography competition was organized uh, on the theme of peace, education, and climate change. And then also we had some uh, discussion about the activities uh, of the Center for Peace Studies in the last two years. Um, we try to organize this uh, anniversary talk every year during the anniversary uh, day celebration. And this year, uh, uh, we decided that the talk will be on the title of Reclaiming Peace in the Current World Order. And when we decided this uh, title of the talk, at that time, the, uh, the Ukraine war didn't start, but somehow it coincided. And uh, you can see that and that's why probably it has become more relevant uh, to discuss this topic today. So we have a very distinguished uh, speaker today with us. I will introduce him in a shorter, uh, in a short while. But before that, I just uh, let you know that why I have decided this title, because as a uh, Peace Center, uh, which is what, uh, doing the different kind of research and other kind of the advocacy activities on uh, peace-related uh, issues. Uh, we always try to understand the concepts and uh, discourses of peace uh, from different perspectives. So uh, we are <clears throat> going through a very different time, especially in post-COVID situation. The world has changed a lot during COVID and world is going to change also in coming days in the after COVID situation, if there is really this, we are in the after COVID uh, scenario now. And uh, the whole uh, uh, context of the world order is also, we are seeing that uh, uh, coming into a uh, place which is fascinating in terms of students understanding, faculty understanding, as well as the researchers. So as a uh, also, a student of uh, international relations, we all are interested to know more about what is happening in the world and how the world 
is going to be changed. And I will just emphasize that we need to see and discuss about all different perspectives. So there are different uh, uh, kind of the uh, connotations, paradigm discussions, uh, discourse uh, uh, debates are going on. And uh, as a university, we believe in uh, more diversity in the uh, intellectual discussions. And we think that uh, more we uh, bring different ideas on the table and we learn from different perspectives that will give us a proper a collective view of uh, comprehensive view of what is happening. Uh, so with that note, uh, I would uh, uh, say that this is a fascinating topic and uh, we are very excited for the talk. And we hope that uh, we'll have a kind of a uh, debate in next and discussion in next one hour. We try to finish it by 10 uh, p.m. or maximum 10 uh, past 10 uh, because it is uh, <clears throat> will be too late after that. Uh, and with uh, that introduction uh, kind of a thing, I would just uh, introduce now our distinguished guest, Dr. Kevin Barrett, who is an American scholar, is one of the renowned critics of the war on terror. He has authored and edited several books and appeared many times on CNN, Fox, PBS, and other broadcast outlets, and has inspired feature stories and op-eds in New York Times, the Christian Science Monitor, the Chicago Tribune, and other mainstream publications. Uh, Dr. Barrett is a former teacher of French, Arabic, Islamic studies, humanities, and other subjects at college and universities in San Francisco, Paris, and Wisconsin. Wisconsin. He currently works as a talk radio host, nonprofit organizer, editor at Veterans Today, and pundit at Press TV, Russia Today, Aletiza, and other international channels. So, with that uh, introduction, I am I also very happy that he agreed to give this talk today. And I now invite uh, Dr. Kevin Barrett uh, to start his uh, talk. Just to give you an idea about the modality, Dr. Barrett will take 20 to 25 minutes to give his presentation, and then we'll have some open discussion, question and answer session. So over to you, Dr. Barrett. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Huck, and thank you to East West, um, I'm sorry, to North, North South University and the Peace Studies Program, and that anniversary is a major occasion. We need more Peace Studies programs in the world, and I congratulate North South University for founding one. And so this is really an honor to be invited to speak on an important occasion. So the, the topic uh, of my talk um, is, of course, the uh, reclaiming peace in the current world order. And uh, the question that quickly arises when we bring up that topic is, uh, what is the current world order? Um, and that... Uh, is an even bigger question right now than it has been uh, in the past. So the world order that we're in right now has been described by some as a case of uh, kind of collapsing unipolar order or incipient multipolar order. What does that mean? Uh, well, uh, today the United States is in some kind of state that's been talked about as pre-collapse or disintegration in a number of ways in terms of its ability, at least, to maintain its unipolar post-Cold War empire. Uh, taking some facts from the book Disintegration by Andrei Martyanov, uh, who's a very interesting uh, Russian analyst, 
<clears throat> he points out that the debt is the overriding problem in this unipolar empire today, that the United States has an external debt of $21 trillion, uh, a gross federal debt of $30 trillion, and a debt-to-GDP ratio of 130%. Now, these are most likely unsustainable figures, and they're increasing uh, rapidly. The reason for this debt problem is that the United States produces less and less after emerging from World War II with the best production base in the world, the United States has slowly slipped relative to the rest of the world. Um, since 1960, the manufacturing output of the U.S. has declined from 25% of uh, global GDP to 11%. Uh, the U.S. has fallen behind in these key production indicators, such as steel production, uh, shipbuilding, um, aerospace, uh, commercial aerospace, etc., so that has created uh, a, a very unstable situation. Um, in, and the U.S. empire today rests on the petrodollar. Uh, the United States is forcing the world to accept the U.S. dollar as de facto uh, global currency. And it does that uh, through a combination of threatening the world with military power and this deal that was arrived at uh, by Nixon and Kissinger in the early 70s with Saudi Arabia, in which it was agreed upon that only dollars could be used to purchase oil. So the petrodollar is now the basis of the U.S. empire. It can't, uh, it can't run on gold or any other honest international exchange mechanism anymore. And this was analyzed very ably by Michael Hudson in this book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire. Well, uh, essentially, this uh, Ponzi scheme or scam, which has allowed the United States to print as many dollars as it wishes and use those dollars to purchase real goods and services from the world and to build 800 military bases all around the world uh, to maintain its empire, is eroding uh, for the reasons I mentioned earlier. And so... The world empire today, in a sense, uh, can be accurately described as the empire of lies, as Vladimir Putin called it a couple of days ago in a very powerful speech that he made. Uh, the empire of lies is lying about uh, a long list of things, beginning with the value of the dollar that pays for that empire. That do The dollar has no inherent value. It's essentially a confidence game. That is, the world has been uh, duped into accepting the dollar as a valid metric uh, and exchange for real goods and services. And the dollar is just uh, doesn't have that value anymore. Uh, so that's one level of, of this uh, empire of lies that Putin mentioned. But there are many others as well. One is the, the propaganda of the empire tends to be uh, even more mendacious than normal propaganda. You know, we get Russian propaganda from the Russian media networks, Sputnik and RT. We get Iranian propaganda to a certain extent, I think a lesser extent, from press TV, where I sometimes appear. And then we get BBC gives us British propaganda and, and so on. Well, this imperial propaganda coming from what you might call the Anglo-Zionist empire, which is led by the United States, is exceptionally mendacious. Uh, 
And that's the first reason that we could call this the empire of lies. Uh, here's just one example from the other day. We were told that a heroic battalion of Ukrainian guards defending Snake Island uh, refused to surrender and used an expletive to insist on not surrendering to the Russians and were all killed and died as heroes. It turns out that Ukraine itself now admits that those soldiers surrendered to Russia. But the original impression made by this Western lie uh, still exists in the minds of the people who heard it because people are influenced by emotion more than by truth and reason. So that's one level of the empire of lies. How does the empire of lies uh, get away with this ability to basically force the world to accept its narrative? Well, we already mentioned that it has unlimited money behind it because the U.S., uh, or rather the Federal Reserve, which is privately owned, it's not a government entity, can produce as much as many U.S. dollars as it needs to. And then those U.S. dollars are used to consolidate media control. Uh, so the friends of the people who issue the dollars then buy up a uh, monopoly on the media. Uh, this U.S. media was called the Mighty Wurlitzer. Uh, uh, that, that's uh, an or a huge uh, organ that was played in movie theaters to manipulate the emotions of movie audiences. And it was, it's been compared to the media, the imperial and especially U.S. media. Um, and so it's been said that North Korea forces people to listen to their propaganda. In the U.S., people do it willingly. Well, they don't have much choice because all of the mainstream media is essentially under the control of a very small group of people who have chosen to use it to create a certain propaganda narrative. And Operation Mockingbird plays a role. That is the CIA's... Uh, media control operation. And it, it was considered the most successful operation in the history of the CIA. Uh, and the founder, Cord Meyer, was issued the CIA's highest medal for creating what the CIA still views today as the most uh, effective uh, and successful operation in its entire history. That is Operation Mockingbird, the CIA operation devoted to controlling the American and Western media and turning it into a propaganda apparatus. So when we look at the stories that, are, that come up, let's say, when one uses Google, which is also uh, part of this Operation Mockingbird CIA propaganda apparatus, uh, what we find is that, it, uh, for instance, if we, if we look for a false flag operation, um, this is a term that refers to an attack it's disguised to make it look like the attacker is uh, not who it really was. And if we search that today on Google, what we find is all of these stories from American mainstream media about the U.S. warning that Russia was going to stage a large false flag operation to justify its invasion of Ukraine. Well, as it turned out, Russia didn't need to. They just invaded without any false flag operations. But this, this was a huge warning that there was going to be a big false flag operation. And that's, of course, rather humorous because the specialist in false flag operations, of course, is the United States or the call it the Anglo-Zionist Empire. The United States has launched every single war since the Mexico invasion of 1846 which the United States used to steal two-thirds of Mexico's territory by uh, blaming the victim, 
for uh, an attack, which was either not real or which was orchestrated. So we had the sinking of the USS Maine in 1898 to allow the United States to attack Spain and steal its colonies, both in the Caribbean and the Pacific, the Philippines being the most important one. We had the sinking of the Lusitania, which was uh, it was committed by a German submarine, but it was orchestrated by the United States in order to prepare American public opinion for the entry into World War I. There are questions about the Zimmerman telegram, which allegedly involved a German-Mexican conspiracy to attack the United States. Then the United States also entered World War II with uh, something of a false flag operation. Uh, Pearl Harbor was the result of a United States plan that was described in the eight-point memorandum by McCollum in 1940, which urged the United States to make sure Japan fired the first shot. And so the United States knew that Japan was coming to Hawaii, and they intentionally allowed uh, the American sailors to be slaughtered uh, in order to inflame American public opinion and allow U.S. entry into World War II. In 1964, we had the Gulf of Tonkin incident that never happened, uh, a completely false story that North Vietnam attacked the United States, which brought the U.S. into Vietnam. Uh, and then we, find, we had the Nurse Naira story, uh, about a nurse uh, tell, sobbing and telling the American Congress about Iraqi soldiers murdering uh, innocent Kuwaiti babies by pulling them out of their incubators and smashing, crashing their brains out on the floor. Nurse Nair was actually the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador. She was not a nurse. And so that never happened. So the United States repeatedly has lied to launch its wars. And uh, here, it, here it was accusing the Russians of that. And 9-11 was the mother of all false flags. Um, and then it was, it, it, there were before, before 9-11, there were false flags to demonize the Muslim world and set up the story of 9-11. The 1993 World Trade Center bombing was committed by an FBI informant with help from the FBI. The 1998 African embassy bombings were run by a CIA FBI special forces operative named Ali Muhammad. The 2000 USS Cole attack in Yemen was actually uh, the bomb went off from within the ship, just like the USS Maine. Uh, in October 2001, we discovered anthrax letters mailed to Congress. That's how Bush uh, forced through the Patriot Act, destroying the American Constitution. And that anthrax attack is admitted today to have been a false flag inside job from within the U.S. biowarfare complex. And we have a long list of other post-9-11 false flag events designed to keep the so-called war on terror, which is actually a war on Islam, going. So, uh, false flags uh, are a major part of the empire of lies, 9-11 being the mother of all false flags. The false flag uh, uh, destruction, uh, demolition of the World Trade Center with explosives, murdering nearly 3,000 people, was committed by U.S. and Israeli insiders in order to launch the series of 9-11 wars, which, according to Gijin Palya, an Australian scientist, uh, created what he calls the 30 million Muslim Holocaust. He gets the number of 30 million Muslims murdered by the U.S. wars post 9-11 through a, a methodology which you can dispute, but there's no dispute that there were many, many millions of innocent people murdered by these wars. So the 9-11 anthrax false flag, because the two were part of the same operation, led to the 2019 COVID attack. The U.S. biowarfare conflict uh, uh, industry is the biggest in the world, and there is all sorts of reason to suspect that COVID-19 was unleashed by a United States bio, biological warfare attack on China. Now, I won't go over all the reasons for that because it's a, it's, it's a fairly complex topic, but this, here's a 20-minute video 
that as you can see his is well over 50,000 views. I just, this video I put up last week, an interview with Ron Unz, who is the editor of the Unz Review and the leading proponent of this thesis that the United States attacked China and Iran with biological weapons or with, with COVID-19, expecting that COVID would be contained within China and Iran and was surprised when uh, it blew back and became a global pandemic. Um, this The smoking gun uh, proving that this is the case is uh, an ABC News report citing four separate intelligence insiders uh, that this report came out in April 2020. And all four separate high-level intelligence insiders told ABC News that the United States Defense Intelligence Agency warned its other agencies and allies in uh, early November of uh, 2019 that a terrible pandemic was brewing in Wuhan, China. Now, the only people or agencies that could possibly have known that there was any pandemic in Wuhan, China in November 2019 were the people who had created that pandemic themselves. Because in Wuhan, there were only a handful of people who were starting to feel a little bit sick at the time. So this, this uh, is essentially a smoking gun uh, proving that indeed the United States unleashed COVID-19 by attacking China and, and Iran. So these false flags typically uh, are about creating a scapegoat for war. Uh, it's about war propaganda. War propaganda always focuses on a scapegoat. And uh, of course, Putin is the contemporary scapegoat for the uh, war that we're seeing develop today. Um, so as far as COVID, I believe that the COVID attack on China, where it was unleashed at the military games in October of 2019, was designed not only to harm China uh, with biological weapons, but also to create the impression that COVID came from China and was the fault of China. Um, and that is, of course, what the propaganda is telling us uh, today. Um, so uh, everybody's blaming China, the Democrats, the Republicans. Uh, Trump was especially blaming China for COVID. Uh, and this uh, pivot to Asia uh, created the conditions for a series of United States biological attacks on China. The United States destroyed China's meat supply during the two years before COVID broke out by spreading bird flu and swine flu to destroy much of the Chinese output of chickens and pigs. Uh, and so today we have the, this empire of lies desperately trying to stop the emergence of a multipolar world led by Russia and China. Um, this shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Graham Allison's book, The Thucydides Trap, points out that every empire in history, uh, with only a few exceptions, has gone to preemptive war to stop the rise of serious challengers. And so anybody who knows history knows that the United States is very likely going to wage wars of aggression, i.e. preemptive wars, to prevent the emergence of a multipolar world. The one of the reasons that uh, Russia may have invaded Ukraine is the there's a whole history of American biological attacks on Russia, Cuba, Eastern European countries, China, and especially Korea. Uh, and the U.S. has since September 11th and then the anthrax follow up to September 11th, the United States biological warfare industry has mushroomed. And now there are biological warfare labs, not only all over the United States, but all over the world. 
Uh, of course, Wuhan, the WIV in Wuhan was created by the United States. It's a United States lab too, even in China, but they're also surrounding Russia and there are many of them here in Ukraine. Uh, Robert Cadillac is the world's leading advocate of the use of biological weapons. Uh, he was appointed as the bioweapons czar by President Trump just in time for the attacks on China's meat supply in 2018 and 2019, and then the attack on Wuhan in, uh, in October 2019. And here's a quote from Robert Cadillac. He says, the 21st century will be a century of economic warfare. The emergence of economic competition raises the possibility of a new form of warfare. This includes the development and use of biological warfare against economic targets. And that's precisely what they've, what they've been doing. And that's precisely what COVID-19 was. Uh, just before COVID-19 broke out, a few months before that, uh, the, uh, Robert Cadillac, the head of the U.S. biological weapons, ran the Crimson Contagion exercise, envisioning a pandemic in China that had to be contained, exactly like COVID-19. So they ran a simulation of COVID-19 uh, simply ju just uh, a couple of months before the actual pandemic began. And uh, here's the uh, slides about the suspected uh, U.S. biological attacks on China's meat supply. Uh, And of course, COVID-19 broke out in the worst possible time and place for China in Wuhan, the transit hub for that nation on just in time to become a pandemic for Chinese New Year when most of Chinese, the Chinese people are all traveling and most of them are going through Wuhan. Uh, that's exactly the time and place that one would attack China with that kind of weapon. And of course it was US money that funded gain-of-function bat coronavirus research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which set up China as the scapegoat for COVID-19. China has been demonized after uh, the release of COVID-19. So uh, all in all, what is what, the, the point I'm making here is that when, when Vladimir Putin talks about the empire of lies and says that we need war crimes trials, uh, he's not only talking about the Nazis in Ukraine, the so-called Ukro-Nazis, who have been shelling civilians in the Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, the Donbass region, for uh, seven or eight years now, uh, killing hundreds every year. Uh, he's also talking about, without quite admitting it, war crimes trials for the managers of the empire of lies, who, have, who launched the COVID pandemic as just one of dozens of biological attacks against other countries, most of them against economic targets, not against people, but a few of them against people. U.S. murdered uh, hundreds of Cuban civilians uh, with dengue fever um, was involved in murdering Africans uh, with uh, anthrax um, in during the the wars of liberation in southern Africa, and and so on and so forth. Then there are that long list of false flags I already mentioned, and especially the 9/11 false flag and the false flags after 9/11, the 9/11 wars that killed so many millions of innocent people. These people really, the, behind all of this, the people behind these actions of the United States empire need to be taken to the Hague and put on trial for war crimes and hanged until dead. Uh, we're not going to have peace in the world until something like that, or possibly a peace and some kind of truth and reconciliation commission is, is set up. So uh, in, to sum up, if we're going to have a peaceful transition to the multipolar world order, uh, What's going to have to happen is first, the Anglo-Zionist empire of lies is going to have to voluntarily relinquish its, its hegemon status. 
And that's easier said than done because these people are psychopaths and they've been ruling the world for a long time and they don't want to give up their uh, rule of the world. So we need, we're going to, so one way or another, going to have to have war crimes trials for the perpetrators of the September 11th false flag, the people who blew up the World Trade Center and murdered 3,000 civilians so that they could murder another 20 plus thousand Muslims. And of course, the people who murdered uh, 15 million or more worldwide with the COVID biological attack on China and Iran. All of these people need to be put on trial for war crimes. And if we have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, maybe they won't have to be hanged. Um, the current elites in the West won't do this. So the U.S. needs internally driven regime change to make this happen. And that means we need to wake up the American people about what their government has been doing. And if we do that, uh, the best way to do it would be with minimum impetus from military defeat and economic collapse. That is, I think this is going to happen one way or another. And some combination of military defeat and internal United States economic collapse, which is a likely scenario given the coming demise of the dollar, uh, is, is unfortunately all too probable. But in that situation, there will be a tremendous amount of human suffering, not just here in the United States, but worldwide, because uh, terrible wars will break out. Again, this is why we need the American people actually to wake up and do something about this before we reach a stage of a global war and uh, an economic collapse. So uh, in sum, uh, this peaceful transition to the multipolar world order is not going to be easy. And to make it happen, we need to disabuse ourselves of all of these lies that we're constantly being fed by the Western mainstream institutions, beginning with the mainstream media, but their publishing industry, uh, the, the Western university system. These are all part of an empire of lies dedicated to, to, to forcing the world to accept false narratives about practically everything. And that empire of lies needs to be overthrown. That's the only way that we uh, even have a chance of having a peaceful world. So thank you. That's my, uh, my talk, and I'm happy to answer questions. Uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Kevin Bennett, uh, for a very fascinating and uh, uh, interesting uh, discussion. I'm sure that uh, many of our students, uh, they, they're getting uh, some information and also uh, discourses which have not been discussed probably um, in their classrooms or other scenarios. And uh, we can see that as you are rightly pointing out that there is an information war going on. There are uh, propaganda coming from uh, uh, Russian side, definitely from Chinese side, also from the Western sides, and it's very difficult because, uh, as you all know, that when the uh, the war starts, the first casualty is the truth, and uh, we don't know that how to find out the truth, and uh, that's why it is important that uh, listening from the different sides and uh, try to find out the truth as objectively as possible. So, thank you very much uh, uh, for your uh, presentation. I now open the floor uh, for comments and questions or any observation, uh, you can raise your hand uh, in, the, in the Zoom and then, uh, or you can uh, type your comments in the chat box. So both are allowed. So the floor is open now for faculty members and also for students. So uh, you're free to just uh, raise your hand and then we'll allow to talk to you or 
you can just write down your comments and observations in the chat box. Anyone from faculty members? Okay, I can see Maruf's hand. Maruf Mosin, yes, please, if you can unmute. Maruf is a faculty at uh, Political Science Sociology Department. If you can unmute yourself, Maruf, we cannot hear you. Maruf, unmute. Thank you, uh, Professor Kevin. A very enlightening um, uh, presentation. I have a question for you regarding uh, uh, towards your last slide, and that is uh, you mentioned that um, uh, U.S. can be militarily or economically defeated. Now, I don't see any, uh, I, I can't see clearly that, that aspect because militarily U.S. is the most strongest military in the world. Economically, they they um, they are the architects of the system we live in. The economic and political system, the the trade settlement is in U.S. dollar. The uh, entire financial system is hegemon against the U.S. dollar. So how how do you how do you foresee that uh, that scenario happening when you, you, U.S. is uh, does not retain that status quo? I think that yeah, that's a very good question. And people have predicted the demise of the U.S. empire um, earlier. Uh, in back in the early 2000s, uh, people were predicting various forms of, of economic collapse based on peak oil and things like this that haven't happened yet. Uh, so it is a long-term trend. And I think, you know, one way to think about this is to think about the, the U.S. petrodollar as a kind of a Ponzi scheme. Uh, in a Ponzi scheme where uh, a, a con artist convinces uh, victims that there's a very profitable business here. So give me your money and I'll pay you a very high percentage profit. And they use, and then they, the word spreads and new money comes in and they use the, the, the con artist uses the new money to pay the, the profits to the, to the old money. And that can go on for quite a while. Uh, in fact, there's theoretically it, it's limited really only by when, you know, running out of, of people. And so I think there's something kind of similar going on with the uh, petrodollar scam, which is the whole base, the economic basis for the U.S. empire. And I think that we may see this transition happening uh, sooner rather than later now that the conflict with Russia has come to a head. Russia is now being banned from SWIFT, which has been called the nuclear option. And that will force Russia uh, to follow through on its efforts to get outside the dollar trading system. Now, Russia, China, Iran, and the various trading partners that they've worked with have already uh, pioneered this to a certain extent, but it hasn't started happening at the kind of scale it would need to happen to really threaten the dollar. But now it might, because now uh, it's an existential issue for Russia. So that might be one trigger that leads to the kind of rapid change that could produce that economic collapse. In terms of military defeat, uh, I don't think the U.S. empire is as undefeatable as uh, the propagandists tell us. It was defeated by a group of underarmed uh, ragtag uh, tribespeople from rural Afghanistan. Uh, couldn't couldn't beat them. And it was defeated by uh, an Iraq that was practically in ruins, but still made occupation untenable. And those are really sort of third and fourth rate opponents. 
the famous American conquest of Granada under Reagan was a good example of how the U.S. likes to, as Michael Ledine said, pick up some weak little country and throw it up against the wall and beat it up every so often to prove how tough it is. Well, now we're seeing that you know, Russia with its hypersonic weapons, that uh, these, these kinds of weapons, especially anti-ship missiles, have totally changed uh, warfare. We're in, in the, uh, the next generation. Uh, the revolution in military affairs now means that all of those U.S. aircraft carriers are sitting ducks. And they won't, none, no U.S. aircraft carriers are going to last more than a few minutes if it ever becomes a, a really serious war against uh, Russia. And if the U.S. even goes after Iran, it's going to lose its entire navy in that region as well as its military bases. So I think there's now kind of a standoff. It's, that is, the U.S. no longer has that uh, escalation dominance that it once had militarily. And, of course, we may be finding out about this, unfortunately, sooner rather than later. Okay, so we have uh, another question by Professor Nuruzzaman. Uh, Professor Nuruzzaman, can you unmute yourself? Uh, thank you uh, for giving me the opportunity to speak here. So I would appreciate uh, the speech by Kevin Barrett. Uh, thank you for enlightening us on this important issue. And um, uh, you were right to say that uh, the US, like all other empires, has been an empire of lies. It has a hugely powerful propaganda machine, and uh, it depends on uh, military networks like NATO, and also another 800 military bases throughout the world. So there is in fact very little opportunity, chance for other states to mount up serious pressures against the US and force it to get civilized and change the course of American foreign policy behavior. So I would particularly uh, focus on the last part of your uh, presentation that is uh, how to reclaim peace. And you have made two important points here. Number one, that the, the US should uh, willingly relinquish its power and hegemony uh, throughout the world. And secondly, you have emphasized internally driven uh, changes. That is, uh, you are depending on domestic uh, public opinion, the pressures created by people from the bottom level. But uh, realistically speaking, the US is not going to relinquish its uh, dominance, its power throughout the world. And secondly, the American voters, American people are mostly branded sleeping dogs, meaning that whenever there is a crisis, their financial position is affected, then they get up, rise up against their uh, rulers and uh, vote them out of power. And this is what happened during the last uh, period of President George W. Bush. Now, if you look at history, then uh, the Roman Empire disintegrated because of fighting continuous wars and also under serious natural uh, disasters. And secondly, uh, during the, after the First World War, we saw a few empires disintegrated, like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, also the um, German Empire uh, disintegrated. And then following the Second World War, all of the imperial powers, they did not give up power voluntarily. Rather, they actually tried to stick to their position uh, throughout uh, the Third World countries uh, particularly. So now I see a very little opportunity, uh, very little scope for the US power to be uh, brought under control and any change, possible change in American foreign policy. Now, you, do you think that really that America uh, is fighting continuously and in the process of fighting with other countries, it will eventually become economically unsustainable. The American Federation cannot sustain itself. Currently, Fed's 
is a printing money without any particular uh, clue that it does not have so any clue. Can you just a little bit become so brief? We have that, some um, my, love, uh, my last question. point is yeah. that um, is it uh, the case that America would someday disintegrate because of continuous fighting like all other empires in the world? So is that the only possibility we have in front of us? Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Oh, Dr. Yes. Kevin, so if you can answer briefly, we have more hands raised. So, uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, the, the, well, the American empire, I think, will disintegrate like all empires have at some point. I think uh, probably within uh, at least a, maybe one to two decades. Uh, and what uh, whether that disintegration would happen internally with, with a kind of a civil war scenario, uh, as in the novel American War by Omar al-Akkad, a very talented Egyptian-American novelist, uh, is another question. Um, but uh, it, it's, uh, uh, you know, that it, actually, I don't think I can give a really short answer to that question. So, and since we have a bunch of other questions, um, I'll go ahead. Uh, but, uh, but yes, I do, I do think that your, your uh, discussion was, was very good and that the U.S. empire is going the way of all empires and probably sooner rather than later. Okay, thank you. So we have uh, three more hands, Parimal Palma, Shorov, and the, then Mr. Farooq Ahmed. And if you just can be a brief a little bit, Parimal Palma. Yeah, yeah uh, so thank you so much for a wonderful presentation. Uh, so this is actually very intriguing, this uh, discussion. Uh, you said uh, a lot of uh, propaganda is uh, being made by the US and a lot of that you presented here. Uh, why would they do so, number one, and after the Second World War, uh, there has been a sort of world order created, new world order created to the Britain Hood organizations, institutions. Uh, and uh, do you think that uh, uh, the world is going to have a new type of world order and the Britain Hood institutions will be uh, which are actually uh, led by the USA or US uh, and its allies uh, will be uh, destroyed. Thank you. Dr. Ben. Yeah, yes, I think that's a good point that the current or the, the, the past uh, post-World War II world order rested on the institutions that were created after the war, you know, from Bretton Woods uh, through NATO. And uh, I think the overextension of that empire through the U.S. going off the gold standard and just basically counterfeiting money and getting away with it through a combination of propaganda and military power uh, is uh, is reaching uh, its limits uh, through overextension, just as the NATO is overextending by uh, poking the Russian bear in Ukraine. So I think that uh, overextension is going to lead to uh, a change in the institutions. And I think that many economists recognize that the current U.S. debt levels makes the dollar unsustainable as a global reserve currency. And they have discussed various alternatives to the dollar in terms of baskets of currencies and and including precious metals and things like that. Uh, and, and so, yes, I, I, I side with the economists who think that that's inevitable. People like Michael Hudson, somebody I would rec really recommend. He's done, I think, more sort of honest work on this than anyone else. Okay. Show up. Okay. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, thanks for the fascinating presentation. So uh, I don't see that it is the hegemony of U.S. because uh, after the Second World War, U.S. Uh, reconstructed the Europe through its Marshall Plan. And my question is that uh, 
Kissinger and Nixon administration started bilateral relationship with communist China as well as give the status Pakistan as major non-NATO alliance. And now see Pakistan and China is under the Russian bloc. So do you think that uh, US is persistently doing uh, wrong to choose uh, its um, uh, friend or alliance? I'm sorry, it's, is it, is it is your... Become, I'm sorry, my question, re- is, yeah. do you, my question is that, do you think that uh, US uh, is uh, doing wrong choosing the uh, choosing its ally, like China and Pakistan? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, th- I don't think the U.S. has, of course, ever been allied with China. Uh, the U.S. did, you know, Nixon went to China and defused the, the Cold War with China, but it certainly, China never became a U.S. ally. It became a, a kind of a target for U.S. investment. Um, and as for Pakistan, Pakistan was a U.S. ally for throughout the entire Cold War and beyond. And then uh, when in, in 2001, uh, Bush told Musharraf, according to Musharraf, that he had to obey orders or Pakistan would be bombed back to the Stone Age. And I assume a similar threat was made against Saudi Arabia as well, because Saudi Arabia, the king of Saudi Arabia had announced uh, in August of 2001 that Saudi Arabia could not remain in the U.S. orbit any longer due to the Palestine problem. Um, and so then 9-11 happened, and the uh, Americans pointed a nuclear gun at the head of Pakistan and probably Saudi Arabia. Uh, so the, que- the question is, is the U.S. choosing its allies wrongly? Well, it's, I think it's, uh, you know, the U.S. has uh, basically been very opportunistic in trying to install compliant governments in key strategic regions. And it has uh, succeeded at that quite astoundingly, given the, uh, the price that people in many of these countries have had to pay for being uh, a part of the U.S. empire. And, uh, but I, I don't think that uh, choosing Pakistan as an ally in the Cold War was necessarily such a bad decision. That did lead to the luring the Russian bear into the Afghan trap and ending the Soviet Union. Uh, that was a geopolitical triumph, as Brzezinski has reminded us. Uh, so overall, I don't think the U.S. has necessarily chosen its allies badly from a strategic perspective. But from a moral perspective, of course it has, because the people who will collaborate with an empire in an occupied country are essentially, let's face it, cowards and traitors. And so everywhere the U.S. goes, it has to find cowards and traitors who are willing to sell out their own people for U.S. dollars. And morally, that is just an abomination. So from that perspective, the U.S. is forced to choose its allies badly because only cowards and traitors will cooperate with it. Uh, Mr. Farouk Ahmed, can you please say a little bit brief? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Professor. I am from a different background. I am from the private sector business community. I work uh, in a uh, trade chamber. Uh, well, uh, I'm impressed with your presentation. Now, let me just straight away go to the question. Uh, well, according to your critical analysis, what are the positive sides of United States or positive strength that has kept U.S. for over last hundred years 
as the superpower and perhaps will continue to keep for another 50 years at least, other than the propaganda activities. Mm -hmm. So uh, if US's enemy could find out those strengths and could hit those areas, it would have accelerated the fallen of the US empire. So mm. what are your critical thoughts? Thank you. Mm. Well, that's a good question. Although I do think that those enemies who want to bring down the US empire need to focus on the, the weaknesses and the Achilles heels, because I'm not sure they can do very much about the strengths. And, and the strengths, I believe, are number one, uh, the U.S. has a very large territory and a large, reasonably uh, well-educated population uh, and a growing population, unlike countries with demographic problems like uh, the European countries and Russia and soon China. The United States, due to its uh, constant uh, immigration, is uh, in relatively good balance demographically. You know, the demographic in, in inverse pyramid problem is going to be uh, really crushing a lot of countries around the world, and it will hit the United States less uh, lethally than it will hit many other countries. So that's the I think the biggest uh, advantages the United States has are simply these the fact that it just happens to be on a very uh, well you know resource endowed large chunk of land with a population of over 330 million, uh, who by now, many at least, are pretty well-educated. Uh, and so just as you know, China's advantage is that it has uh, practically a billion and a half uh, now pretty well-educated people um, on a fairly good-sized chunk of land. I mean, that's really what we just have to get down to. This is where power really comes from. So those are the real advantages, and I don't think there's anything that anybody can do about that. So I'm afraid the enemies of the United States empire are going to have to attack its weaknesses rather than its strengths. Okay, so uh, we have some uh, written questions, one from Dr. Raymond Liu. Uh, he said that since America is what you and also Russian President Putin suggested as an empire of lies, does it mean that world would be a better place or the peaceful world order can be reclaimed without the United States? So I just have a, a supplementary question uh, with that. So uh, even though we are in this uh, whole year presentation, we, uh, we, we have seen that uh, the role of U.S. in the hegemony. Uh, but if we see the current crisis of uh, uh, Ukraine, and if the situation goes like this and Russia becomes more weaker, which is also a possibility for many analysts because of this uh, uh, nuclear uh, economic uh, initiatives of this uh, withdrawing from the sweep. And if the Russian economy collapse and also Russia becomes more weaker because of this uh, uh, invasion in UK, then uh, uh, what would be the future of the multipolar world? But does it, um, in your view, do you, don't, do you think that Russia did a right kind of a decision to uh, make an invasion and did it really calculate or miscalculated the overall uh, kind of a reaction from the Western world? Did it miscalculate uh, the whole thing and it, there might be a possibility that it will become more weaker than before? So these are one supplementary question and also Dr. Raymond's work, yeah. Okay, well, uh, well, I'll answer your question first, uh, and it's fresh in mind. Uh, and I, I think Russia 
you know, we, we can't really judge whether Russia miscalculated with this invasion yet, because that calculation is really about timing. I think something like this was inevitable, given the uh, Western um, provocations isn't even the right word. It's more than provocations. I mean, the, the West has, has been waging proxy war on Russia uh, back since the days of the Soviet Union. It never changed. It never let up. And then in, in 2008, it was announced at that conference in, I think it was in Czechoslovakia, that, that NATO uh, was planning to expand to Georgia and Ukraine. And then in, in 2014, uh, the United States spent uh, more than $5 billion to overthrow the government of Ukraine in a coup d'etat uh, with the uh, intention of turning Ukraine into a, an anti-Russia bulwark. Um, and that precipitated the situation we're in today. Given that uh, U.S. slow motion war on Russia, Russia was going to have to respond like this at some point. It could have done it, that it could have launched this full-scale uh, attack on Ukraine in 2014, but it probably chose not to at that time because it felt that it wasn't strong enough. It didn't have these hypersonic weapons and its nuclear deterrent hadn't yet been fortified. But then the choice of doing it now, I think, was probably a choice of timing. And we won't know whether that timing was correct or not for for probably years. Uh, I, I assume the Russian decision makers looked at the time frame that the U.S. would take to uh, try to catch up with Russian military advances and, and nullify them and saw that today or saw this this moment as a window of opportunity for doing this. But they felt they were going to have to do this uh, or something like it or even something worse eventually, given uh, the U.S. behavior. Uh, so how it plays out, Iran has done very well after being cut off from SWIFT. Uh, we're, we're told how, how, you know, how terrible things are in Iran. Well, I've been all over Iran and uh, Iran is bustling. It compares in terms of economic vibrancy. Uh, I've been there. I was, I've, I was going there every year up until 2019 from 2012 to 2019. Iran looks like Turkey in terms of its economic vibrancy. And it's vastly ahead of places like Egypt and Morocco and, and other countries like that I'm familiar with. Uh, Iran has been forced to build its own cars, uh, to build its own products. It's exporting less oil than it would otherwise, which actually is good in the long term for the Iranian economy. And it's been forced to find ways outside the dollar system. So the same thing will, will happen in Russia. And it will involve some short-term belt tightening and suffering. Uh, but in the long term, it may actually strengthen Russia. Okay, so do you want to answer that question? I just repeat it again that uh, Dr. Raymond asked that uh, uh, would be a, does it mean that the world would be a better place or peaceful world order can be reclaimed without the United States? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Can, will the world order be peaceful, more peaceful without the United States as the uh, would-be hegemon or not? And of course, the apologists for the United States empire would say, of course not. They would say, that Thomas Hobbes was correct, that the only way you can have peace is to have a Leviathan, that is a uh, single sovereign that crushes any resistance and also crushes any dissent that is turning into violence. Um, 
you know, so, so the, the Hobbesian argument is that without a hegemon like the United States, this multipolar world is going to become a war of all against all, and the prospects for peace will dim. Uh, so I guess the answer to that question depends on how Hobbesian you are. Uh, but as I see it, the post-World War II United States uh, empire, this American world, has not been a very peaceful place. And this Hobbesian violence that's been dished out by the American Leviathan is just absolutely horrific. Noam Chomsky and William Bloom wrote a book uh, called uh, the, uh, it was called the Empire, um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of, of, of their book, but you can, you can just Google Chomsky and Volchek. Uh, and they estimate that the number of people killed in American wars and CIA interventions since World War II is between 55 and 60 million. And, and that's probably pretty accurate. Um, so that's, that's about as many people as were killed in World War II itself. Now, yes, it was spread out over a much longer time, but it's still uh, pretty horrible. We have not had a peaceful world under this United States empire. And when I look at what I'm, what I hear from Chinese leadership, Russian leadership, Iranian leadership, these relatively independent countries, um, they don't have the kind of history of aggression that the Western Europeans and the Americans do. You know, Europeans and Americans conquered the entire world through brute aggression. They went all over the world, conquered every place that they could turn their guns against. Chinese never did that. They they, they sent bigger ships than the Europeans had, but they just traded. Uh, Russia has been primarily a defensive power, and Iran has been primarily a defensive power. So these Eurasian powers that are basically defensive, I think, are oriented more towards peace than the Western powers, which are basically uh, geared towards, they're basically pirates. As Buckminster Fuller said, they're sea pirates that sail around the world and murder people and steal their goods. <laughs> so uh, so I would side against the, the, the Hobbesians and argue that our prospects for a peaceful world are actually greater in the emerging multipolar world. Okay, we have two more uh, comments in the chat box. Uh, one is by Rashid Ulalom, said that what is India's position in this crisis? India is in squad, uh, quad, on the other hand, strategic partner with Russia. And India also did not uh, vote for uh, the sanction or this resolution in this uh, UN. Uh, so that's one question. The other one is by uh, Ishad Zakia Sultana, she wrote that in 19 years from 2001 to 2020, the number of US military died in the war against Iraq, Syria, Libya, Afghanistan was over 7,000. And the number of military who joined the war in those countries committed suicide in this period was over 30,000. It is said that the main reason of such huge suicidal rate is post-war trauma. US still does not wake up. What is your comment on this? Well, in terms of the second question, I think the, the those numbers sound low to me. I think it's actually the numbers, uh, certainly for the veteran suicides, are actually higher than that. And there has been a tremendous trauma in among American veterans who learned very quickly that they were fighting an unjust war, and they were basically fighting the whole population of the countries that they attacked. And that I think human beings are by human nature, you know, uh, we know that we're not supposed to commit aggression, but we're willing to fight in self-defense. And so when the empire of lies tells us that we're fighting in self-defense to go, we're going to Iraq to defend ourselves against the weapons of mass destruction. We're going to Afghanistan to defend ourselves 
against these people in caves who supposedly blew up the World Trade Center. Uh, and then we, we the, the fire, the, the American troops see what's really happening in these countries they're invading. It's uh, it creates cognitive dissonance. And then they are basically psychologically destroyed. Uh, so that's one of the prices of empire is the psychological destruction of basically all American fighters who have any kind of conscience left at all. I suppose the psychopaths do okay, but the rest of the soldiers uh, enter a world of hurt and anguish uh, when they join these ventures. And then, so this, this, the second question, or rather the first question was about India's role. And uh, that, that is interesting that Pakistan is, is leaning now towards, towards uh, the independent access of China, Russia, Iran, and then India has been sort of straddling things and trying to play both sides, uh, while Modi is, is, of course, doing these horrific sort of genocidal attacks on India's Muslim population in a long-term effort to perpetrate the biggest ethnic cleansing or Holocaust in human history, which would be the ethnic cleansing of all non-Hindus from the entire Indian subcontinent. Uh, and you folks in Bangladesh are in the crosshairs of that insane project. Uh, so we do need to mention that that the leadership in India is an exception. When I said that there was essentially sane leadership in Russia, China, and Iran, I think that's true. But unfortunately, there is not in India. So whatever India does, uh, we have to keep in mind that it's being run by uh, genocidal lunatics. Okay. We have uh, two last uh, comments, uh, by first by Dr. Jushim and then uh, Dr. Uh, Sakwat. And I would request them also to be brief. We have uh, five more minutes to finish. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's, it's really great presentation, uh, Professor. Uh, uh, my first question is uh, how to save the world uh, from these Anglo-Janis and Arab lies if they don't voluntarily relinquish? And the second thing is, uh, well, uh, we talked about the American military and economic might, but I would like to get your attention, just uh, you might remember the preemptive strike concept produced by um, the uh, American uh, think tanks. And uh, the American war against Iraq was based on meat and, uh, and it was a PMTV strike. So, uh, I mean, as a superpower, not only the um, uh, American military might or the economic might we see uh, is, uh, uh, you see intelligence network uh, across the world and uh, if you consider Washington is like half, and there are so many, um, I spoke, I mean, if we see uh, across the world, the basis it has, and then, uh, uh, you know, its influence, uh, especially the democratic values on uh, the Western and Eastern uh, uh, allies. So how to actually eliminate uh, all these, I mean, uh, you see American, uh, this military, economic, intelligence, and it's uh, uh, the network um, uh, and think tanks uh, ability. Okay. Sir, please. Okay. Uh, well, well, the, fir the first question was, was how to save the world from the empire of lies. And um, I, not having myself uh, any uh, fighting force or, you know, any magical technology or anything like that, uh, all that I can really see is standing up for the truth, 
And that's why my website is called truthjihad.com, right? Uh, the, you know, the, the word jihad, which is actually a good positive word, it means struggling to defend the community. That's the military jihad. But the greater jihad is the struggle to become a better person. So if you wage the truth jihad, that is, uh, you wage a sort of all-out struggle for truth, or you follow the hadith that the best jihad is a word of truth flung in the face of a tyrant, uh, that I think at least whether or not we succeed in some particular political or military battle in the short term, we are helping save our souls in the long term. And that is really what we're here for. Uh, so, uh, and then the, the, the second question about the, how, you know, how to deal with the, the think tanks and these, you know, strategists with their, you know, preemptive war doctrines and things like that, I suppose, uh, we can, you know, we can infiltrate them. We can, I have a friend in Washington, D.C. who goes to all of the think tank events and asks very hard questions and says the kinds of things that I've been saying here. Uh, and again, that, that's also a way, a way of you know, waging the truth jihad, or that is, you know, struggling to try to help people see the truth. Because ultimately, I think wars are based on, on, on lies, and specifically the lie is always the same thing. It's always that, uh, we, the powerful group, have been attacked by these less powerful people. So we have to go fight them to defend ourselves and incidentally steal their resources. So that's the same lie over and over telling us that we, the powerful, uh, have been attacked by the powerless. And that, that's the false flag, right? So exposing that kind of lie, the that's the first lie that justifies warfare, is I think a really major way of standing up for peace. And so if we are very strong uh, with insisting on telling the truth in all of our dealings with these think tanks and other imperial institutions, um, maybe we can incrementally at least make the world a better place. Okay, thank you. So Dr. Sakwat, please uh, very briefly. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, sir. I'm sorry. I was not present. I was in some other place uh, uh, discussing about the future of this conflict. My question is very simple and very small, sir. Uh, as now we see that there are probably 30 to 40,000 weapons in the hand of all Ukrainian, most of the Ukrainian. And then America is uh, dispatching 250 million worth uh, weapon, including Germany has now agreed. That means that uh, the entire Ukraine is going to be weaponized, particularly with the Ukrainian citizen. And that uh, somehow is uh, going to be a dangerous ploy if, 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 if this war prolongs. Do you think sir, this will have a ripple effect in uh, the countries like Hungary, Poland, and, 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 and Belarus and other places, uh, number one. Number two. Uh, do you see a polarization, uh, more than one polar world? Uh, in one side is China, Russia is, of course, if it comes through this war, and then, of course, the, uh, uh, the Europeans and Americans. Okay, so, yeah, the, f the first question was about the arming uh, Ukraine and that uh, whether that will spill over throughout the region. I don't know if, if this actual, the this, this sort of uh, this arming of, of Ukrainians, both civilians and whatever is left of their military is, is itself going to be spilling over. 
but it will certainly create the conditions for continuing chaos in Ukraine. And we're already seeing reports of Ukrainian groups, including you know, Ukrainian groups that are basically both against the Russians fighting amongst e- each other. You know, it's the same kind of scenario that we see in Yemen, where uh, pro-Saudi uh, forces fight with pro-Emirati forces. Uh, so it certainly will create chaos. Uh, Russia, at some point, is going to have to decide how much of Ukraine it wants to disarm and, and denazify, because it obviously cannot control all of all of Ukraine. So I would guess that Russia will end up uh, essentially uh, trying to make sure that the eastern part of Ukraine, and I'm not sure precisely which geographical boundary they'll end up choosing, is uh, more or less under their control and pacified. And then the, uh, the rest of Ukraine is going to be a crazy hornet's nest and an economic basket case. And then that chaos could, sp- the way I see it spilling over would be maybe if, if uh, the US and especially, I think the UK has been talking with Poland about sending Polish troops under non-NATO auspices into Western Ukraine. And now that's territory that Poland believes belongs to Poland. They never accepted that that is part of Ukraine. So that creates a, a whole new problem territorially. And so the, the British and the Americans who may end up uh, convincing uh, Poland to send troops into Western Ukraine might find that a short-term military advantage, but a long-term geopolitical headache. Uh, so uh, all I can say is it just looks very chaotic uh, right now. And it, it looks like there won't be an end to the chaos in Ukraine anytime soon. Uh, and then as far as the the issue of uh, the multipolar world and the li- battle lines being drawn, that's been under, uh, con- you know, that's been happening for quite some time now. And I would you know, direct people to the work of people like uh, Pepe Escobar of Asia Times, who's been writing about this. Uh, I think that this will accelerate multipolarity because it will force Russia to make its choice. Russia has been trying to stay uh, straddling the line between Europe and Asia, you know, trading with uh, with uh, NATO countries as well as with uh, China and Iran. And now Russia is going, have to, going to have to go all in with the block of fully independent countries uh, led by China and, and then with Iran as well. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think the multipolar world is going to be, uh, it's going to be undeniable within a few years. Thank you. We have a last uh, uh, question in the chat box, and uh, with that, we will try to conclude. So, Dr. Harris has this question that, do you think if Donald Trump was still in power, then Russia would go to war against Ukraine? That's a really interesting question. What, what if Trump were still in power? <laughs> well, you know, interestingly, it was under Trump that the uh, U.S. Uh, started arming Ukraine. You know, the histor- history of this is, is, of course, in you know, 2008, that NATO announced that, that Ukraine and Georgia would be coming in. And in, in 2014, they staged the uh, Maidan coup d'etat. And it, but it wasn't until Trump was in office that the U.S. began seriously arming Ukraine and making it a de facto part of NATO. Uh, so and likewise, Trump actually opposed the North Stream pipeline uh, more uh, adamantly than Biden. And Biden ended up kind of capitulating to it prior to this war breaking out. So 
I'm not really sure that having Trump in office would necessarily have made any difference because Trump himself, uh, even though he is an America first kind of populist who actually would personally prefer to dissolve NATO. He, he said that. He's, what's the, what use is NATO after the fall of communism? And he's right about that. <laughs> but uh, he was surrounded by national security hawks, and he appointed the worst neoconservatives, people like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, who I believe were responsible for the COVID-19 biological attack on China and Iran, after appointing these kinds of people and surrounding himself with the usual National Security Council suspects, I don't think Trump would have done anything differently, really. So I think we might very well still be in the same situation if somehow Trump were still in office. And he would actually add uh, another layer of, uh, <laughs> of chaos to the situation. So I don't think it would be any better. Uh, but I could be wrong. I mean, you know, if, if Trump were actually in charge and able to dissolve NATO, then, of course, we wouldn't have this problem. Okay. Dr. Tofik? Dr. Tofik? I would uh, like to pose a question to Dr. Kevin just okay. for a brief response. But in light of the fact that we have uh, quite a few of our students, our undergraduate students who are here, and you've stressed how uh, pervasive the U.S. propaganda, U.S. and Western propaganda are tips could you give to our students so that they won't find the propaganda so alluring that they become part of that army of uh, cowards and traitors that uh, betray their own country for uh, Western goals and Western ideals? Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, it's, it's hard to make a living if you're not part of these imperial institutions. Uh, and it, it can even be worse than hard to make a living sometimes. So that puts people in a real quandary. Where do you go in life? Are you going to join the imperial institutions and have a materially comfortable life, at least until those institutions collapse? Or are you going to resist those institutions one way or another? And I urge people to resist them. And I think it's an opportunity for creativity. You know, think about, you know, how could you, for example, rather than joining a kind of establishment corporate media outlet, what if you banded together with some other smart people and use your creativity to figure out how to create a very successful media outlet, something that's appealing, you know, populist, appealing kind of media outlet, but that doesn't have to be basically parroting the propaganda of the empire. Uh, it's, it can be done. And so I, I see it as a challenge. And so I'd urge the students to say, you know, let's, let's not just settle for an easy life uh, in the short term, at least. Let's uh, take this as a challenge and use our creativity and find a way to push back and to have a good time and at least survive while we stand with our values and stand with the truth. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kevin uh, Barrett. And uh, with that, we are coming to the end. It was a fascinating session, almost one hour and 15 minutes, and this is 15 past 10. And uh, I really thank our uh, speaker and also the students who joined this event and our faculty members. And I will just conclude by saying that uh, as uh, our speaker was saying, and also at the beginning, we were saying that we need to listen from all the perspective. 
there are needs for having look into the narratives of different sources and critical thinking is very very important especially when uh, you are looking for uh, truth and knowledge so i think that's why as a university we always bring different perspectives in the table to discuss and we listen from different people and uh, and with that it is your responsibility as a student of political science or international relation or as a researcher that uh, find out the new neutral objective truth and it's very difficult uh, in this world situation because the information war and the different other kind of intellectual things are going on war and different perspectives are coming so uh, this is the responsibility of the individual to also look into things critically and find out so don't take the things uh, with the uh, face value that uh, a, a professor said that even not me or even Dr. Barrett, whether we are saying, and that's why you should not believe us. You should check the with the with facts and figures. And if you don't convince, then don't believe us. So that's the thing that I would always tell my students. So look into all the perspectives, see the different narratives, and think critically. And then you will find that where we are heading towards, and that will really, really help us. I would again uh, thanks a lot to Dr. Kevin Barrett uh, for joining us and uh, giving a fascinating lecture. So with that, uh, we are concluding this session. Thank you very much. Thank you all.